Glad to see you. Hey, listen, it's the Sunday after Easter, and I want to thank you. You're blessing my hearts because you have so much energy and so much excitement, which sometimes doesn't happen on the Sunday after Easter. I don't know if you know this. You can kind of be a little bit of a letdown Sunday because we've had so much joy, and then we come in on that Sunday afternoon as a little buzzkill that goes on, you know. Can I, can I remind you, we all agree, Jesus Christ is the risen Lord even on the Sunday after Easter, right? Amen? Let's hear it. Good. I'm excited about that, but I'm more excited to get back into the Gospel of Luke and this amazing study. So would you pull out your Bible, if you would, and get ready to study Luke. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I welcome you if you're visiting or you're a guest. We have a phenomenal passage we're going to look at today. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming, and you'll want the, the written word in your hands. And here's what I need to do. I need to share with you a statement that you're going to need to wrap your head around a little bit. This is a truth that's really critical. In fact, you won't be able to understand chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke until you begin to get this statement. So will you think about this with me for just a minute? It goes like this. If you take a deep sense of personal humility and you combine it with confidence in the supremacy of Christ, then you have two of the most critical ingredients that you need for genuine faith. Okay? Like the 100% genuine kind. Gospel faith. Faith that moves mountains. Faith that transforms the world. Faith that turns your world upside down. You need two ingredients. There are two things that are required, plus a few others, which we'll talk about in a minute. You got to have these two things. Humility, like genuine humility, and confidence in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? They go together. Show me a person who's humble, but they don't have a very high view of Jesus, or maybe they have no view of Jesus, and I will show you a person who's probably trying to live life in this world depending on themselves or something else that's constantly letting them down. It reminds me of the time when I was trying to teach my daughters how to swim. And my girls were really afraid of water, so it was really hard to teach them how to swim. And I remember Lauren, she was so sweet. She was a five-year-old girl. We were in the pool, and she was clinging to the wall. And she was very humble, all right? The humility was there. And I was about five feet away from her, and I needed to get her to let go of that wall and swim to me. And so I would say to her, Lauren, do you trust me? And she would say, yes. And then I would say, let go of the wall. And she would say, no. Lauren, do you trust me? Yes, let go of the wall. No, right? There was humility, but there was not a lot of confidence, okay? And here's the thing. I meet Christians all the time who are right there clinging to something. There's humility, but for some reason, there's not this confidence in Jesus. Okay, show me a person who's got lots of great information about Jesus, but they don't have a humble heart. And I'll show you a person who's probably got a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of heart transformation, 
And they may even be struggling with a little bit of self-righteousness, right? But think about what happens when you get both of those and you put them together. Because faith is not just knowing the right things about Jesus. James says, the demons know things about God and they shudder. Faith is about more than just information. Faith is about my heart fleeing to Christ. And why would someone do that? Because they also are experiencing deep humility. Humility and confidence. And let me tell you something. Do you know what's amazing? We're going to see it today. That kind of faith grips Jesus' heart. Amazing. Jesus is astounded by it. In fact, what Luke is going to tell us is Jesus marvels at that kind of faith. It's not even my word. It's Luke's word for Jesus' response. Will you look at it with me? Luke chapter 7. Our text is 1 through 17. We have two stories we'll look at. The first story will get the bulk of our time. I'll read the second story near the end. But what I want, to know, I want you to know is that, now listen, River West, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is doing things all the time that makes people marvel. They marvel at his teaching. They're like, I've never heard anyone teach with so much authority. And they marvel. They marvel when Jesus steps to the front of a boat and he rebukes a storm. And Luke says the people marveled. People marvel when he heals. People marvel at the empty tomb. But did you know that there's a moment in the story where something happens that makes Jesus marvel? Just one time. Here's what happened. Luke 7, starting in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion, and a centurion is a Roman soldier, okay, with pretty high rank. A centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by the centurion. And when the centurion heard that Jesus, um, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. For when those, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amazing, amazing story. Can I, can I point something out to you? Jesus, when he heard about this man and his faith, Luke says, he marveled. 
he was astonished. The word astonished means almost like this pleasant surprise. It's almost like marveling with amazement. Jesus is astonished, and the reader is astonished by Jesus' astonishment. Because the reader's thinking, now wait a minute, how is it possible that the sovereign Lord of the universe could have an experience that he was not expecting? Because <laughs> that's what astonishment means. It means to be caught off guard. It's that feeling where you get a flood of energy and you're like, oh, what? That's what it happens when we marvel. So we marvel when the sun comes out before the 4th of July in Oregon. We're like, oh, the sun, we marvel, right? Okay, that's what that feeling is. We marvel when our baby says its first words. It's just a bunch of like gobbledygook and glossolalia. And then suddenly something comes out that's right. And it's like, dada. And you're like, oh, yes. And then you poke your wife. Did you hear that? It was dada, right? I'm, right? We marvel at that. We marvel anytime Damian Lillard has the basketball with 10 seconds or less <laughs> left. We marvel. And you know what? Jesus marveled. What was it? It was something about the quality of this man's faith. Amazing. Can I point something out to you? This story is actually not fundamentally a healing story. It is about a healing, but that's not really the emphasis. So in fact, in your Bible, you probably have a, a subtitle. You have like a caption that probably says, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And my thing with that is that the healing gets one little passing phrase in verse 10. It's like, oh, and yeah, and they went home and he was fine. I think this should be titled, What Makes Jesus Marvel? Because that's what the story's about. All the ink is spilled telling us about a centurion, an outsider, a Gentile, who's a soldier who has an experience of faith that when Jesus hears about it, Jesus is astonished. He can't believe it. And so what I want to do in our time here together is I want to suggest for you a couple of things about this faith that made Jesus marvel. What was it about his faith that captivated Jesus? I'm going to suggest four things, and I'm going to put them up so you can look at them. I want you to take them in all at once. Here are the things that made Jesus marvel, okay? The insight of his faith, the humility of his faith, the confidence of his faith and the desperation of his faith. Insight, another way to say it would be, here's a person who has really surprising perception into the identity of Jesus. How? How did he get this? But he not only had insight and knowledge about who Jesus was, it was coupled with humility. He had a deep sense of his own humility followed immediately by confidence to approach Jesus boldly and to believe what Jesus says will happen and also a hint of desperation. And here's what you should be thinking today. How's my faith, right? How's my faith? This story is a gift to us. River West, let me tell you something. We have a gift. Luke recorded this story so that when we read it, we would read through it and go, whoa, this, this person's being lifted up as a model of faith and it can help me to evaluate my own faith and ask Jesus, Lord, is my faith strong enough? 
Is it growing? Is there anything you want to change? Anything I need to add? So we'll walk through these together, and there might be one or two that really get at your heart. That's okay. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. That's what he wants to do. So what I want to do is walk through the four, and then at the end, I'll tell you something really significant that will lead us to the table. So let's talk about them. We begin with the insight of his faith. You know, Jesus couldn't believe that the centurion knew things about him that this person should not have known. He turns to a crowd of his followers who are Jewish, and he says, I have to be honest with you that I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and I've not seen anyone with faith like this. So interesting. Jesus would have expected the people of Israel to understand his identity. They were a people who had the Torah. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the traditions. They should have been able to discern who Jesus was, but they weren't. Not anywhere like this outsider, this Gentile. And Jesus is blown away by it. He marvels at it. So interesting. The centurion perceived by faith critical truths about Jesus' divinity, his divinity. That he had authority to create through his word. That's, did you see that? It's in there. He knew. He came to Jesus, or he sent people to Jesus saying, you just say the word and it'll happen. How would he know that? He knew this person is divine and he has power. His word is powerful. And not only that, he's not limited by space and time. The centurion knew Jesus, you don't even have to come to my home. You could speak this from five miles down the road, and it will happen. Whoa, amazing. What faith. Go back to verses 7 and 8 and look for yourself. He says, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority. I know what that's like to be under authority. If my commanding officer tells me to do something, boy, oh boy, do I do it, right? And I've got people under me, and if I tell them to do something, boy, oh boy, they better do it, right? It's the military thing. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. But here's what's amazing. The centurion took that whole paradigm, and somehow he had the wisdom to transfer it into the spiritual realm and say, I recognize, Jesus, that this is how things operate in spiritual reality, because you are unique and you have authority. What faith. What a vision of Christ. So amazing. Can I share with you this morning a little principle from Scripture? It's kind of like an axiom. It goes like this. As goes your view of Jesus, so goes your faith. As goes your view of Jesus, the higher it gets, the more supreme he becomes, the more your faith will erupt, explode, burst. There's no end to it, right? Isn't that profound? That's why we're studying Luke. Because what happens when we study Luke is we see Jesus. We see these accounts of his divinity, his compassion, his authority, and our eyes are open and we encounter Christ and our hearts are filled with faith. But did you know what? The opposite is also true. If you starve yourself of gospel accounts of who Jesus is, so goes your faith. 
Your faith will atrophy without fuel from God's word about the beauty, the supremacy of Christ. Amen? This is why we, this is why we encourage and challenge people to n- never give up on this moment where we're experiencing our hearts are being fueled with beautiful truth about who Jesus is, how powerful he is. It's so good. I always want to remind us to just be blessed by what we're experiencing here. Now look, I need to tell you about a threat to faith that is live in our culture. It's live in our culture and it's finding its way into our church and I want to warn you about it. Here's what it is. It's a, it's a definition of faith that comes from outside of the church. There is a way that unbelievers define faith that is devastating to faith itself. And you would think, well, why, why would we be impacted by what unbelievers think faith means? But let me tell you something. This definition is so in the air, it's so in the water, that because we live in this world, if we're not careful, we are breathing it and drinking it, and we could bring it in with us. And the definition goes like this. And even as I say it, you're going to immediately recognize it. It's something like this. Faith is believing something for which you have no evidence. Faith means believing something even though there's no evidence for it. That's how our world defines faith. So let me give you a couple examples. And then I'm going to tell you why this is so dangerous. Here's an opinion piece from the LA Times from a few years ago, uh, back when the government was debating over government funding for faith-based organizations. And a professor from the University of Southern California wrote an opinion piece where he basically mocked belief, religious faith. And here's, what he, here's how he defined it. He said, faith is unwarranted belief. Faith is belief without evidence or despite evidence to the contrary. Faith occurs when a person believes that something is true even though he suspects it is false. I didn't know that I was doing that. This is so, I didn't know that I was believing in something even though I suspected it was actually not true. But apparently I am because of the LA Times. It's the Sunday after Easter. Let's get fired up, okay? He goes on. Just in case you weren't offended, he goes on and he says, it takes large doses of such faith to support the very existence of casinos, psychic hotlines, astrology columns, mall Santas, and most organized religions. So there we are. We just got lumped in with mall Santas, psychic hotlines, and casinos. Welcome to River West. That's how the world defines faith. Here's a couple of other quotes. Here's Nietzsche. Faith means not wanting to know what is true. Here's Benjamin Franklin. The only way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. Mark Twain got in on the act. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. (laughs) Where do we get this? Where did this come from? It's interesting, if you study the history of philosophy from the Enlightenment on, there came a point where philosophers started to suggest that the world should be broken into two realms, 
what they called the fact-faith divide, or you could say the secular sacred divide. And the idea was there's two, there's two realms in our world. There's a secular realm, and that is the realm of fact. That's the realm of empirical evidence and logic and reason, science, economics, politics, philosophy, etc. And then there's a sacred realm, which is a realm of faith and values and personal feelings, but it's a, a realm that's completely void of evidence. And the problem with that is that the Bible never asks anyone to believe anything that is not true. River West, are you hearing me? You are never asked to believe something that's not true. You're never asked to believe something that might not be true. You're never asked to believe something that you suspect might not be true. The Bible does say that people who People have faith, and that hate, faith is the confidence of things not seen, right? But seeing is not the only form of evidence. In fact, our eyes deceive us all the time. And the reason the Bible said that is that the Scriptures knew that not all of us would get to be there to encounter the risen Christ. So what would we depend on? We would depend on Luke and his gospel account. We would read it and go, this is so clearly true. He's written an orderly account to encourage people towards certainty. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers in the holes in my wrists. And Thomas believed. And he said, that's fine. You believe. But let me tell you something. Blessed are people who will not get to see me and they will believe. But that's not faith without evidence. That's just faith without seeing. Amen. Now think about how devastating that would be if you started to believe that the things that you believe about Jesus are probably not true when in fact they couldn't be more true. Your faith would just shrivel. It would shrivel. And now you know why we gather on a Sunday and we study Luke and our hearts get fueled with gospel faith. Insight into the identity of Jesus. So it's insight, but it's also humility. And this is what's amazing. This centurion, man, his humility, it was so profound. Did you notice that in the, in the way the story is told, one group of the Jewish kind of element, they come and they say, this guy is so worthy, Jesus. He's worthy, he built our synagogue. He's a noble man. It was almost as if they were saying, you should heal him because he's earned it. Merit. And then the centurion sends another group and they say, I'm not worthy. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's right there in the text. One group's, he's worthy. The centurion says, no, no, no. Let me tell you something. I am not worthy. I couldn't be more unworthy. I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home. What humility. And here's the thing. we got to remember, humility for the Romans was not a virtue. This was not a virtue. It was a sign of weakness. They had lots of virtues that they cared about. The Greeks cared about courage and prudence, temperance, justice, wisdom, knowledge. Cared about all that stuff. But humility was like, that was foolish. If you were humble, you, you were looked down upon. 
You needed arrogance in order to lead or be a person who had sway in the society, especially if you were a centurion. This was really risky for this guy to humble himself, to send representatives who would say to another leader, I am not worthy of you. Whoa, how powerful. I want to argue this morning, and I want to press this into your heart, that if you were to try to come to the very center of of gospel faith, what you would find in there is humility. There's got to be humility. Arrogance is like kryptonite to faith. It It just crushes it. Because faith means I stop depending on myself and I look to another. But that's really hard to do if I'm... I'm struggling with arrogance, right? And arrogance is so subtle. It just kind of creeps in. We don't always even know it's there, right? How about you? Tim Keller tells a story of a young man in his church who was really talented and he was really arrogant. Tim Keller pastors in Manhattan, downtown Manhattan. And what he always says about Manhattan is, The people who come to Manhattan are the best and the brightest, the smartest, the most talented. He goes, I got a church full of people who are are like culture makers in our world. And he tells the story of this young man who came to his church, and this man was a really, really gifted violinist. He came from the Midwest somewhere. He came from one of those towns where he was so talented, he was like the big fish in a little pond kind of a thing. And then he shows up to Manhattan, and he was immediately humbled, right? And Keller, he tells the story. He says, this young guy, he got off, he got off the subway in Manhattan thinking, give me six months, and I'll be playing in the best orchestra in Manhattan, right? And he gets off the elevator, and suddenly he hears someone playing the violin in the subway. And he's like, wow, whoever this is, they are really good, like a lot better than me. So he starts to try to find the sound of the music, and he comes around a corner, and there is a guy begging, sitting on the ground, playing the violin, begging with a can, hoping people will drop coins in his thing. And the guy's like, I don't think I'll be playing in an orchestra anytime soon, right? You don't even know you're arrogant until something happens. You encounter someone and you realize, wait a minute, this has been lurking. Do you know what happened to the centurion? He heard about Jesus. Things about Jesus that caused him to realize, I think I have authority. I think I have power. I think I have influence. Let me tell you something. I'm hearing about a person who is so unbelievably significant that I feel unworthy. That's what humility is. It's not thinking badly about yourself. It's not thinking I'm horrible. Humility is seeing yourself accurately in the light of who you are before the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that good? It's not beating yourself up. That's not humility. We're wonderful people. But the reality is, in the presence of Jesus, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. So powerful. Insight of faith humility of faith, but also confidence. Confidence. And you're thinking, how do we get from humility to confidence? Do those go together? Well, here's the thing I want to suggest. The opposite of 
Humility is not confidence. The opposite of humility is arrogance. You can be humble and you can be confident at the same time. The key is, are you confident in Christ? And are you humble before Christ? Because you can be both things. And I want to argue that this man was. He was amazingly confident. Why? Because he knew Jesus. I know. I got the military thing going. I get it. I realize if you say something is going to happen, it will happen immediately. It's not like if you say, okay, this is going to happen, the world will stop and say, well, let's think about that a little bit. That, that's not how it works. And he knew it. And he knew it because he was a military man. Now, we are, a lot of us are unfamiliar with the military. I know I am. I, I don't have a ton of familiarity with the military, so I don't, I don't always understand how that works. When I first came to River West, there was a, a guy in our church. He was a wonderful guy, and he was a Marine. He was an ex-Marine. And this guy was just... I mean, he was a man's man, all right? This is the kind of guy you want to know in a zombie apocalypse. He was like that kind of a, of a dude. And he led one of our community groups. And I was the pastor over community groups. And he and his wife were going to move to another town. And so I was starting to figure out how are we going to transition that community group. So I went to one of the members that was in his group. And I asked that person, hey, I think it'd be really great if you took over leadership of this group. And I, f I found out a week later that, that this group leader, this Marine, he was really mad at me. I was like, what have I done? And I found out about it. And then he, he reached out to me because he was very direct. And he sat down and he goes, he goes, I need to know. I was really, I was really ticked about that. I was like, why? And he goes, because you broke the chain of command. I was like, there's a chain of command in community group ministry at River West. Yes, you broke, you broke the chain of command. This really mattered to him. He was like, you went around my leadership in the group. And I was like, wow, I'll never do that again, okay? Right? This matters, okay? And the centurion got it. And you know what it did? It actually raised his confidence because he knew something. Jesus is authoritative. He's authoritative. It's, it makes the military look like, like, you know, nothing. I mean, if he speaks, it happens. And what I want to ask you, River West, is do you believe that? I mean, that is a source of astounding confidence in your Christian faith. It would have to be. Okay, I have a quote that I'm going to share. This sits on a three-by-five card in my desk. I read it all the time. And the quote goes like this. Anxiety is the heart confessing that Jesus is not Lord. Just think about, think about that for just a minute. Anxiety is the heart confessing that Jesus is not Lord. And I have that and I read that. I don't, I don't read that to make my, I don't read it to make myself feel bad about myself. And I understand that there are anxiety disorders that are chronic and serious. This is more for me to remind myself, Adam, if you become aware of the fact that you're in a place where you're just tied up with tons of worry and anxiety, is it possible that your view of Jesus is way too low in that arena of your life? 
You say you believe Jesus is Lord, but your heart is confessing the opposite. How about you? What is that place in your life? I'm not saying it's not scary. I'm not saying it's not big. It could be something that feels super out of control. But the question is, do you believe Jesus is Lord of that arena? That is, he's got the authority, right? Amazing insight, humility, confidence. But then finally, desperation. It's interesting. There was a desperation about this moment. And you say, where? Where do you see desperation? Well, we have a character who is extremely powerful, wealthy, influential, with vast amounts of resources at his disposal, both physical and human resources. And yet he finds himself in a situation where none of those things can fix the problem. None of them. Money, power, influence, beauty, resources cannot fix this problem. And he has the wisdom to realize, I'm desperate for someone who can. Oh, desperate. I need to flee to the one person who can fix this. Yesterday, we, we just had this beautiful memorial service here for Ellie Hotze. If you knew Ellie, she was so beautiful, so amazing, woman of faith. She died really young. She died of cancer, and she was just an inspiration to us. And the service was beautiful. Pastor Eric did an amazing job. And there was one story that he told that I had not heard before. I have to tell you this story. He was saying that a couple of months before Ellie passed, when her cancer had just taken over her body and, and she was starting to die. They were having, they were spending time together and it was a very emotional conversation. And Eric was just listening to her process and he, and he said, Ellie, I just have to ask you a question. Like, what has it been like to be in this fight with cancer? What's that been like for you? And Eric said, she kind of looked at him with almost like horror, like she was going to punch him in the face or something like that. You know, and, and she said, Eric, let me tell you something. I am not in a fight with cancer. I'm not fighting cancer. That's not what's happening here. God has numbered my days. He's sovereign. In fact, she said, my cancer has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. Who says that? A person who didn't know Jesus before she got cancer. A person for whom... She depended on resources and influence and wealth or other things, thinking maybe, oh, my life is under control, but not having the wisdom to realize there are certain realms in which I am completely desperate where only Jesus has the power to do his work. And Ellie said, cancer brought me that wisdom. Amen? How about you? It's so easy, River West, in our culture, to get confused, to get lied to about what we have and to lose that sense of desperation. Let me tell you, the centurion got it. And you know what happened? Jesus marveled. It's so beautiful. He marveled. Well, what I want to do is I want to finish the story. Will you go back to Luke? Let's just read a few more verses. This will help us get ready. 
for communion. And we have one more thing we need to learn about faith. And it's this, what is, what has the power to create that kind of faith in the human heart? You say, I want insight. I want humility. I want confidence. I want that desperation. How do I, do I conjure that up? Is that something I create? No. So Luke tells us another story critically to tell us a little bit more about faith. And here's what happened. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. That word compassion is the word splankna, and it just means his guts almost got turned inside out. It's that feeling where you just go, oh. Jesus felt that. He marveled a little bit earlier, and then his heart broke. It's so powerful. He had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up, and he touched the beer. A beer was an ancient coffin. It was an open-faced coffin so you could see the body. They would bury people the day of. And what we have to realize is this boy, this young man, probably died that day because in the ancient world, they buried people almost immediately. And the other thing we need to know is that this was, for a widow in ancient Israel, this was the worst thing that could happen to you, to lose your only son. She was alone in the world. And Jesus had compassion on her. By the way, by touching that beer, by touching that coffin, he made himself unclean, ceremonially unclean in Israel culture. He would, be, he would have been unable to participate in worship because of this act of compassion. It was Jesus saying, I'm willing to enter the, the mess of the world. So he touched the beer and the bear stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up. Now we're getting another story where Jesus has the power with his word to speak, and all of reality changes in an instant. The dead are raised, the blind see, the sick are healed. Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And you go, now wait a minute. Why is Luke doing this? Why tell this story? Now we have a story where someone is dead, but no one has faith in this story. In the, in the previous story, the centurion has faith, and that faith, Jesus marvels at it, and Jesus speaks a word, and the boy is healed. In this story, you have a dead son and a mourning community, and no one believes. And so you say, why does Jesus heal? Because Jesus is not healing in response to faith. 
In fact, it's the healing is the cause of the faith. Jesus is not limited by whether or not people have faith. He's not inhibited by it. It doesn't prevent him from doing what he wants to do in his sovereign purposes. In fact, the way that Jesus triggers faith in human hearts is through these powerful displays of his authority. He speaks and things happen. You come to church, you study the gospels, you read about him, you see what he's doing, you see his authority, and immediately faith gets triggered in your heart. And you feel it and you know that it's real. That is the sovereign Lord Jesus loving his people by putting on display his supremacy and it causes faith. And it's so beautiful and so powerful. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's a privilege to be a part of it. I'm so thankful for Jesus. I really am. I'm so thankful for him. I'm thankful for what we get to do this morning. What a privilege. We get to come to the table And as you come to the table this morning, you're going to be confronted with another demonstration of authority, compassion and authority. The sovereign creator of heaven and earth, we just sang about him, hanging on a tree to take away my sin. But we know that he rose again on the third day. He walked out of a tomb with a shout. And so this morning, as you come to the table, the Part of the purpose of this is that Jesus would restore faith in you. Did you come in with shriveled faith? God wants you to leave with your shoulders up and your chest out, right? Amen. And so I'm going to pray about that. Will you bow your heads with me and the worship team will come. Lord, we stand in awe at the presence of Jesus of Calvary. We're just in awe. And that's what this moment is supposed to be about as we come to the table. To be awestruck, to be, to marvel at who you are, Jesus. And so we thank you. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for this account. It's perfect. It's orderly. It's clear. Thank you, Father, for showing us Jesus. We want to see him again today. We need to see him so that our faith will expand. Show them to us even as we worship this morning. As we eat the bread and the cup, we pray. And we pray it together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you.